Good morning, my name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor, and I invite you to turn with me um, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. This morning we're looking at Luke 18, verses 15 through 17, as we continue in our series on the sacraments. And while you're turning there, I'd, I'd like to share with you the key truth that, that I hope we will see in this passage this morning. And the key truth is this. We all must receive Jesus with childlike helplessness and dependence. Let me say that again. We all, whether young or old, must receive Jesus with childlike helplessness and dependence. So let's see that this morning in God's word to us. Again, we're looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Let's hear now the word of our God. Now they were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our passage this morning, you might be wondering, okay, how does this fit into the sacrament series? Uh, and this passage is not about the sacraments directly. But it very much belongs in our sacrament series for two reasons. First, this passage challenges us to examine the ways we're discipling the next generation. Are we helping them as a church to receive Jesus through their use of the sacraments? The sacraments, after all, as we've been saying in the series, as the series is entitled, they're God's divine invitations to us as people to receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation. And so any faithful and any fruitful ministry to our children and to our teenagers and young adults, to the next generation, to ourselves, any faithful and fruitful ministry must have the sacraments as God's gifts at the heart of it. And the second reason this text belongs in this series is that Jesus uses this passage to show us not only the value and the place of children in his kingdom, but also to show us the kind of person the sacraments are training all of us, whether young or old, to become. The sacraments are designed to help us all receive Jesus with childlike helplessness and dependence. Now, a hopeful question to get us dialed into this text this morning, and this is a good question for you to reflect on on your own. And if you have young people in your life, I encourage you to ask them what they think your answer to this question would be, because um, it, it, it would be a good discussion, I think. And the question is this, what do you want most for the next generation? What do you want most the next generation. Now the key word there in that question is most because we have lots of things we, we long for and we hope for for our children and for our young adults and for the generations that will come after us. But what do you want most? Because the thing you want most is the thing that is going to push and to pull on everything else you're hoping for for the future. It will shape how you speak to young people. It will shape um, how you speak about them. It will shape how you interact with them. It will shape how you take action for them. It is shaping what you invite them into, and it's shaping what you try to steer them away from. And so ultimately, though, as we're going to see in this text, what we want most for the next generation is either helping or hindering them from receiving Jesus. And so it's an important question for us to examine our hearts and to think about as we, as we come to this text and we see Jesus calling his people to receive him and his kingdom like a child. And so let's look at the text together. Uh, this passage uh, occurs 
at, uh, towards the end of Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. So we're jumping right in uh, to the middle of Luke's gospel here. But in Luke's gospel, all the way from the transfiguration in chapter 9 up until the triumphal entry in chapter 19, there's a long section in Luke's gospel where Jesus is on the go. He's working slowly to get to Jerusalem. And along the way, he does miracles, he does healings, he's teaching, he's encountering the Pharisees and dialoguing with them, he's teaching parables, he's telling his disciples why he's going there. There's a lot that's going on. And towards the end of that journey, we get to this passage, the story about Jesus saying, let the children come to me. And it's interesting because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have this brief story. But it's interesting that Luke uses a very unique word in verse 15 as he introduces the story. You see, Luke doesn't just say that they were bringing children to Jesus. He uses a word that means very young children and even infants. So as a physician, I think Luke likes to be very precise with his words that describe people. And the word he's using here emphasizes these are young, small children, even as young as infants. These are little children that these parents are bringing to Jesus. And Luke uses that word, I think, not only to be medically precise and accurate, he's using it because it highlights the helplessness and dependence of these children. We all know um, when, when you think about you know, holding a baby uh, and, and interacting with a, with a little child, we know that they're helpless and dependent. But in our day and age, because of the technology we have, the, the medicine we have, the life and death stakes of their helplessness don't always tower over us the way they did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the helplessness and dependence of a child literally was life and death pretty much all the time. Um, in, in one commentary I, I was reading and studying for the sermon, he cited some historians who, who estimate that as many as 30% of, of uh, infants didn't make it to their first birthday in the ancient Roman world. 30%. And 49% of children in that, in that time didn't reach age 5. And so childhood was a life and death issue of survival. Children were helpless and dependent upon their parents and upon so many other things out of their control, out of their parents' control, just to survive. Um, for us, you know, a lot of our dependence is like, I just need them to be entertained. Um, but then, then, like, it's, it's, this is survival. This is life and death. And so Luke is emphasizing, you know, these children, they're helpless, they're dependent. And when we think about the, the sheer vulnerability of childhood for them in their time, that really helps us to step into this story because it's one you might be very familiar with. But it's important to really think about what is going on here. And all throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus' touch has been bringing healing and power to people as he lays hands upon them or as they reach out to touch him. And you can think about that then. For these parents, they know their, their children are helpless, they're vulnerable, they're dependent. And so now they're thinking, Jesus is here, let's bring our children to him. He is the one person who can help them. You know, I want to cast all my hope for my child on Jesus. And so they're bringing their children uh, to Jesus. And, and Matthew and Mark explain even more than Luke. It's not just to touch them, but to pray over them, to bless them. And so picture the scene. These parents, they're bringing their very young children to Jesus, the Son of God, to, to touch them with his hands, to bless them and pray over them with his own words. And remember, in the Bible, to be blessed is to be in God's presence. And so these children are being brought into the actual presence of Jesus, that he might speak words of his goodness and his love over them. It is a remarkable moment. And yet, for that very reason, when we think about how remarkable it is, it is shocking then that the disciples respond the way they do. Why did they rebuke these parents for doing this? You know, for us, it seems like, yeah, of course you would bring your kid to Jesus. Why did the disciples miss it? Well, again, think about the scene. Luke made sure we understand that these are very young children, um, even infants. 
And young children are not only helpless and dependent, but they can also be messy and noisy, um, and they can run around and be wild, especially as they get a little bit past just very young to, you know, slightly young. And so you can imagine for the disciples, they see this, this group of parents lining up. There might be babies cooing and crying. There are kids hooting and hollering and running around. And in their minds, Jesus has been going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, who are the religious elite and leaders of his day. That's, in their minds, important and significant. And now these parents are bringing these kids who are helpless. They can't contribute anything. Um, they might feel like a distraction. They're noisy. And we can, we can sympathize with the disciples in some way because uh, when we're honest about how grumpy we all can be, when a child interrupts something you deem important, you know, you often can be like, oh, you know, come on, it's the game. Like, you be quiet. I'm paying attention here. This is important. And so the disciples may be thinking something like that and about something way more significant than football. They're thinking, this is not a good use of Jesus' time. We need to protect him so he can use his time for what matters most in his kingdom. And yet, they miss it. But Jesus doesn't. He speaks over the disciples' rebuke, and he calls the children to himself. He sees these parents who are desperate for him to come and to touch their children and bless them, and he invites them to come. And then he corrects the disciples. He says, let these children come to me. Do not hinder them. Why? Because to such as them belongs God's kingdom. Yes, children are noisy, they're messy, they're incapable of contributing, but they're not a distraction from Jesus or his mission. They are not too young to enter his kingdom, he says. They are poised to receive him and his kingdom for the exact reasons that the disciples think they shouldn't be there. And so Jesus is saying they're not disruptions and distractions. He is there for them, and he bids them and invites them, come to me. In fact, Jesus, what he's really doing is he's telling the disciples, these, these children, they don't need to become more mature and sophisticated like you. You need to become more helpless and dependent like them. And it's worth pausing here, though, as, as Jesus steps into this, this conversation between the disciples and the parents. It's worth pausing to really let the significance of all of that press into our lives. Because as you consider how Jesus handles this moment, there is great challenge and comfort For us, as a church, as parents, whether you have your own kids or not, there is comfort here and challenge. First, there's challenge. Notice that with the disciples and their rebuke of the parents, their motives are good motives. And that is is a challenge to us because what it means is they're thinking they're serving Jesus. They think they're doing the right thing. But they were getting in the way of Jesus' ministry to the next generation. And so like the disciples, for us, it is often our good motives that can become the very things that hinder the next generation from coming to Jesus. That's a challenge we have to reckon with. For example, in, in our case, you know, we're, we can be a bit different than the disciples. They're thinking we need to protect Jesus' time. This is a distraction. I think for us, we're less likely to be thinking, oh, man, we've got, we got to honor Jesus. We don't want to bother him. I think we're more likely to focus so much on our kids' success in any number of ways that we could take Jesus for granted. Or worse, that we could prioritize things above Jesus and give our kids the impression that Jesus' job, he's sort of like a cosmic therapist and life coach. He's there to give you heavenly tips to manage stress and negative feelings. And he's there, you know, when things go wrong so you can overcome obstacles. Um, He's there when you need him. You can call him. Uh, But he's off to the side. He's a part of their life. He's not at the heart of it. And so consider this. You know, what is the number one reason any of us, whether you have kids or not, What's the number one reason we give for choosing not to participate in worship and discipleship as a church? 
In our context in the suburbs, it's always busyness of some degree. We can modify that. I'm kind of busy, really busy, super busy, crazy busy. But busyness is our go-to. But being busy is never the whole of the story. We're not too busy. What's really going on is that our priorities are out of alignment. We have prioritized something more than Jesus, even if by just a millimeter it's coming out on top. And the proof's in the pudding because of what you're doing and not doing. And that actually should alarm us at times. We don't need to be alarmed about some of the big things going on out there. We need to be looking at where our priorities are at for ourselves and for our children and for our church. Because think about the parable of the sower. What chokes out the gospel in somebody's heart? It's not some ideology out there being taught at the colleges or being taught by the other party. What chokes out the gospel in somebody's heart, whether young or old, is the cares of this world. And the cares of the world are things like success and money and grades and school and sports and entertainment. These things, they take up rightly, you know, a lot of our time. But when they don't just take up a lot of our time, when they take up a lot of our hearts, they can choke out the gospel. And so the challenge for us as we raise the next generation is helping them grow in wisdom to prioritize these things well and not to, uh, for them to hear so much pressure about you know, grades or sports and then, yeah, 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 Jesus on the side. That, that is to let these other things set the agenda instead of training them to run to him and to hear his call at the heart of their lives. And so we have to let these verses challenge us and confront us. Are there ways where we might be teaching the next generation to prioritize anything other than Jesus? And that, that is heavy, and it ought to be so, but that's not all that's here. The challenge is crucial, but there is also comfort, and I would actually think it's a, it's a double comfort. There's one challenge, but two bits of comfort here in these verses so far. The first part of that comfort is that notice that when the disciples get it wrong at the top of their lungs, they're rebuking these parents, and that word rebuke is a sharp word. It's the word that describes Jesus' action when he's casting demons out. He rebukes them. So this wasn't casual. These disciples, they are rebuking the parents, and yet Jesus speaks louder than them. And in the same way, Jesus speaks louder than our worst moments in discipling the next generation, whether as parents or as grandparents or as uh, Sunday school teachers, as a church. Jesus speaks louder than our worst moments. And that that is a comfort when we find ourselves full of regrets for things we have said or not said, for things we have done or haven't done, No matter how loudly some regrets echo in your memory, the comfort of this passage is that Jesus' voice can speak louder and more clearly than whatever it is you, you remember and are haunted by. You might be regretting something even from this very morning, and you're having a hard time receiving God's word because all you feel in your conscience is just some failure, um, and, and, and you're haunted by it. And yet Jesus is speaking to you right now through his word. And he's speaking to your children through his word. Even if they're not in this room, they're in their classes where they are receiving the means of grace. They're slowly learning to receive his word. And so Jesus is the one who calls all of God's people to himself. And his voice can rise above and even work through our worst moments. That is comforting. And the second part of the comfort here, remember there's two parts to it, is that Jesus sees our faithfulness no matter how futile it seems in the moment. There are moments when you are trying to, to disciple the next generation, when you're trying to reach out to your grandkids or your own kids, and you just feel like you're getting nowhere. You're spinning your wheels, and you're only getting yourself stuck in the mud. And yet notice, that's how these parents probably felt. Don't miss the fact that the people who are rebuking these parents for bringing their kids to Jesus are the apostles. 
I mean, imagine if you showed up at the front doors and, and one of the elders or, or uh, you know, whether it's a pastor or a ruling elder, whether we said, hey, hey, sorry, your kids can't come in today. I mean, you know, this is America. You might feel like, I protest. Um, but, but back then, like, what are they going to do? These are Jesus' disciples. They're saying, get lost. You don't belong here. And yet Jesus sees these parents. He sees their children in what looked like a moment of abject futility. He sees them and he says, come. And so that is comforting for us, whether you're facing some challenge where you're like, I don't know what to do for my kids. I don't know how to reach my grandkids. I don't know how, I care about the next generation in our church, but I don't know if I have what it takes to serve in children's or youth ministry. But I, but I have a burden for that, but I don't know what to do. When you feel like you're spinning your wheels, notice that Jesus is the one who is already moving towards those who want to help the next generation come to him. He takes that initiative. He comes to us and he sees us. Even when in our eyes things seem lost, in his eyes he sees us and he holds us fast and he says, come. So that is comforting, that he speaks louder than our worst moments and he sees us when all else seems lost. And so there, there's great hope just in the way the action goes down here. The parents come, the disciples rebuke, but Jesus sees and he invites. That is the basis for any faithful and fruitful ministry to the next generation. It's Jesus himself and what he is doing in and through us. Now, that's not all there is, though, in this text. We're only about halfway through. So let's look back at the second part of verse 16, because Jesus here, he pivots from interacting with these parents and their kids, and he actually makes a statement that's about everybody who's going to follow him. And he helps us see that all of us, whether young or old, we all must receive him and his kingdom like a child. Now, to understand what Jesus means by receiving like a child, it's actually very helpful to look at this text, this very small text, in its larger context, because that gives us clues as to what does Jesus mean exactly when he says, receive him like a child. And first, look at verses 9 through 14 before our text. I won't read it all, but to summarize, this is the parable that you may be familiar with of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells a parable, a story, about two men who go to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. A Pharisee, again, is a religious leader. He's an elite. He is trained in the word of God. He knows uh, how to sound very pious. And, and this guy, he prays a prayer that's all about him. You know, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. You know, I do all these things. And he gives God his religious resume and rap sheet, and he just unfurls it. And he does it in public so everybody can hear him. But then there's a tax collector. And remember, a tax collector, it's not just like an IRS agent today where we're like, and it's a tax man. A tax collector was a member of Israel who was hired by the Roman Empire to collect money from Israelites to send off to Rome. So he was viewed as a traitor uh, by everyone else in Israel. Like these guys were kind of at the bottom of the social ladder. They didn't get invited to parties. They were not liked. Uh, they may have made a lot of money because they could skim off the pot, but they were, they were looked down upon as worse than your average sinner. And this tax collector comes and he prays and he says, you know, Father, forgive me a sinner. You know, give me mercy. And, and Jesus says, it is this man who says, God, be merciful to me a sinner. He is the one who is justified by God's grace because he's the one who humbled himself. And the Pharisee exalted himself, but he will be humbled by God's judgment. Well, why? Because what's going on here is Jesus is showing us that you can't earn a spot in his kingdom. You can't earn your way into a relationship with him. You are helpless like the tax collector. We are all helpless in our sin. We only receive him by grace alone, through faith alone. 
like the tax collector. And so that is a clue that to receive Jesus like a child means to receive him in our helplessness. We don't come you know, proving ourselves, earning a spot on the team, building up our resume so we can get into the college. It's not, that's not how it works with Jesus. You come in your helplessness. He must come to you in your helplessness like he did with that tax collector. And then secondly, on the other side of our text, there's the, the rich ruler. And it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have this story about the children coming to Jesus, and they all follow it with this story of the rich, um, potentially young ruler who comes to Jesus. And there we read about a, a, a very wealthy man who comes and he asks Jesus, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And the ruler approaches Jesus with a posture of independence. He is extremely wealthy. Today, this man would be akin to somebody who regularly goes to church. He got good grades when he was in school. He landed the scholarship, got into a great college. Maybe his scholarship was for music and athletics. He graduated. He bought a house, settled down, made good money, gave to charity. He had a great investment portfolio. Like This guy was crushing it at life. He was also very serious about his religion. He says, when Jesus mentions the commandments, and he says, hey, you know the commandments, and what does the ruler say? All these I have kept since when? My youth. He didn't have, you know, he didn't go to college and while out. This guy was steadfast in his diligence and his obedience and his rule following. And yet Jesus says, well, you, you lack one thing. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And we know what happens next. The ruler, he goes away sorrowful. He doesn't want to sell everything because he has a ton and he's grown dependent upon it. And he believed that eternal life, that membership in Jesus' kingdom, was something he could gain for himself. And you, you got to imagine, for him, that's how everything in his life works. He has enough money. If he wants it, he gets it. Just like that. He has what he needs. He is dependent upon his money to prop up his sense of independence. He's used to being able to call all the shots and do what he wants when he wants to. And so Jesus, though, he recognizes that, no, you're missing it. You come to me not in independence, but you come to me dependent upon what only I can give you. And that's why Jesus says that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter his kingdom. And the disciples, they're shocked. They think, well, who can be saved? Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God it is possible. And so lest we, we scoff at that rich ruler, you know, think about how often we wish we had his life. Or we wish our kids had his life. We wish, you know, just, just stop sinning, follow the rules, Get it right, start obeying, have whatever you need in life. I mean, so often, if, if you look sometimes at the things we long for and even that we pray for, we really just want the rich ruler's life. We just want to be crushing in a life and not have to depend upon the Lord for anything else. We want things to just work, starting with our own hearts and then the hearts of our kids and then our circumstances. And ever since the fall, that's our inclination. We want independence. We want things to work on our own. And yet we were made for a relationship with our God. We were made to depend upon him, the giver of life. Especially then, after the fall, when now sin is in the equation. We need him more than ever. And yet we run more than ever, too, until he draws us near. And so that helps us see what Jesus means. That the rich ruler is a contrast with these children. The children come helpless and dependent upon Jesus. The rich ruler goes away because he will not let go of his independence. And so when you look at all those things together, it paints a very clear picture. When Jesus says, we must receive him like a child, he's saying, you receive me in the very midst of your helplessness. You can't clean yourself up. And you receive me dependent upon me. You don't have to prove yourself. Don't even try because that will blind you 
to what I'm offering you, which is my very self. But those things, they're hardwired into us because of sin. And so how can we change for ourselves? How can we hope to disciple others, especially the next generation in these things? Well, that is exactly where the sacraments come into play. Because the sacraments, they help us unlearn our sinful sense of independence and having to prove ourselves. And they train us to receive and rest upon Jesus with this childlike dependence and helplessness. Think about how that works first with baptism. Baptism trains us to remember that Jesus is the one who finds us in our helplessness. Without Jesus, we can't even get the ball rolling in our salvation. We are dead in the water. Or since we're talking about baptism, we are dead out of the water. And we're covered in the stains of our sin and our guilt, and we need to be cleansed. But like a newborn child, this is not a bath you can give yourself. You need Jesus to come and to wash you clean with the blood he has shed and to wash you clean with the spirit he has sent. And all of that is signed and sealed by our baptism. And baptism, therefore, reminds us we didn't clean ourselves up. Jesus came to do just that. That's why there is so much significance, as we've been pointing out, in the order of things in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Remember, when Jesus commissions the church to go out and make disciples all around the world, down through the generations, he says, do it by baptizing them and then by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The order there is key. If we flip the order, we're just training up rich young rulers who obey all the rules and don't recognize, no, 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 no. You need Jesus to clean you and cleanse you and change you before any of that will count. And so um, this means that for both adult converts and for children of believers, baptism always comes at the initiation of discipleship. It's on the front end. It's not a sign of anything you've done. It's a sign of what God has promised to do for you in Christ in his covenants. And so Jesus finds us in our helplessness. He washes us white as snow, and then he teaches us how to follow him. And his emphasis on receiving him like a child, I think that can help us understand the significance of infant baptism. Um, I know uh, for, for many people, if you haven't been familiar with the Presbyterian tradition for, for much of your life, it can seem kind of strange. And again, we, we don't believe that baptism automatically uh, saves a child. And I think, though, that part of the hesitation with infant baptism might be connected to our overall discomfort with the church kid testimony. The church kid testimony. What I mean is this, and I speak to this very personally because as a church kid, this is something that often weighs upon me very deeply. Um, the church kid testimony is this. You know, I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, my, my parents taught me about Jesus. Um, I don't really know a day when I didn't believe in him, uh, and I still believe in him. Uh, praise God. Um, and we say it kind of with that sheepishness. Like, you can kind of feel like, all right, where's, where's the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of that story? And often we kind of say that, you know, bashfully, and we feel like, oh, man, you know, wish I had some crazy testimony. Uh, like Tim Hawkins, a Christian comedian, he's like, yeah, you know, we all want an awesome testimony. You know, I wish I had been addicted to some substance. You know, then, then I'd have a good testimony. Um, and, like, his point, he's not making light of the struggles that many people and, and, and many of us in this room have gone through in, in life. He's saying, though, we're making light of the blessing that you grew up in a Christian home and you knew Jesus all your days. And so, you know, for, for me, as, as I've wrestled with that, like, I believe in God as long as I can remember. I cannot point to you to a specific day or moment when there was a before and an after. There are many days growing up when I said the sinner's prayer. They're plural. Um, but there's no, like, day where I was like, that was it. That's the day it all changed. And so what, what sometimes will happen for me is I think, have I really been converted? Like, where's, where's the leap? Where's the change? But here's the thing. In Scripture, conversion does not necessarily require a new leap. It can, but what conversion is always all about is new life. And new life 
Think about the way a seed grows. That seed's been growing long before you see the shoot above the dirt. Those roots have been growing deep for a time. And so new life is something that, that, that emerges over time often. It can happen suddenly, but it can happen gradually. And so in the case of, of infant baptism, um, some of the other sermons have covered why we do that, but I'm talking here more about that sign and seal placed upon them because they're growing up in the context of God's people. They get to receive from his means of grace very early in their lives. And it's never an automatic guarantee. We don't want to be presumptuous, but we do want to be hopeful and hope and expect that if Jesus treats these children this way, there's great reason to hope that early in the lives of many of our children, they will begin to learn the ways of faith and repentance. They will learn how to relate to Jesus in their helplessness and their dependence. I mean, even when an adult converts, it's not like they leap a chasm from sinning all the time to never sinning again. What changes is they learn how to run to Jesus. And we should hope that Jesus would work in our midst to teach our kids from a young age to run to him. And you know, you think about it too. um, What moment did the Father first love in you? Because a lot of times, you know, we think about, well, I don't remember the hour when I first believed as the old hymn sings because I I can't think of an hour when I didn't believe. But the hour that's way more important than the hour when you first believed is the hour when you were first loved. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul makes it very clear that the Father chose to love us before the foundation of the world. None of us can remember that hour. We weren't even made. And so that's what the moment that our baptism points to. It doesn't just point to anything we've experienced It points to what God has promised and pledged in Jesus. And so that can assure us, you know, whether you were baptized in in adulthood or you were baptized as an infant, your baptism always points to the love the Father has put upon you in Jesus. Uh, I've got a quote from B.B. Warfield that I think helpfully explains that. He explains and summarizes the story depicted in infant baptism like this. He says, every time we baptize an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God that we cannot do any good thing to secure it, that we receive it from his hands as a sheer gift of his grace, and that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who do not do but are done for, because we are helpless and we are dependent upon him. And I would add, I think uh, from a, a certain point of view, you could even say there's a way in which every baptism is in a sense an infant baptism. What I mean is think about how Jesus describes conversion. It's being born again. That's not something you work up to. It's not an accomplishment. It's God changing you. And baptism comes at the beginning of your discipleship before you do anything in the name of Jesus. It is all, everything Warfield said here is not just true of an infant baptism for a baby. It's true of everybody's baptism. We come to him as little children who do not do, but are done for by Christ. Now, corresponding with baptism, the Lord's Supper also, as the other sacrament, it trains us to then depend upon Jesus, not just at the beginning, but in all of our life of discipleship. We do not live by bread alone, as the scriptures say, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father, and ultimately by the word who was made flesh, who gave his body and his blood for our redemption. We live in him. We are meant, therefore, to come to the Lord's table with the needy and eager hunger of a child who really wants a snack, but more than a snack, who gets to come to a feast that sustains them, Because the Father has given the Son, and the Son has given himself, and now by the Spirit unites us to him and nourishes us. And again, thinking about the sacraments and the role they play in our day-to-day discipleship, I think often one of the reasons we either hesitate to come to the Lord's table at all, either for the first time or in a particular week, or that we come but we kind of feel like, I don't belong, I think some of the reasons there is that we worry that our experience is not authentic enough. 
How do I know that I really believe in Jesus enough? How do I know that I've repented of this sin enough? How do I know that I'm good enough to come to this table? We can feel that for ourselves. We can feel it. You know, parents, you especially can feel that burden for your children. You want them uh, to, to respond to their baptism. You want them to come to this table with us. But there's that nagging worry, like, I don't just want them to do this because I'm making them. And what if they come early in life and then walk away later? What then? Here's the thing. We definitely don't want to force anyone to come to this. It is not, you know, like, you got to go to school, kids. Sorry. Um, we want them to come by faith. But remember, too, that the Lord's Supper is for our growth. It is for our doubts. It is for our struggles with temptation and sin and guilt. And in, in life, we don't deny ourselves good hygiene and good food until we're healthy. So why will we deny ourselves the sacraments until we feel spiritually healthy? The way to health is always through nourishment. And the way to spiritual health is through the sacraments. They are what nourish and sustain our faith. And so like babies and children, we are dependent upon God our Father to use these things to sustain us day in and day out. All we need to know at the core to come to the table is to know that we need it, to know that we need Jesus, and here he gives himself to us. And so as we're raising up children to come to the table, we want them to, to take it seriously, in other words, to understand it's significant, but we want them to know the joy in it. We want them to be able to do that as early in life as the Lord would call them so that they can grow up at this table. They don't have to grow up to it. They grow up with it and with us there. The table is set. And so all who hunger for Christ get to come. And when you feel too dirty to come to the table, you think, I just don't know if I believe enough. I don't know if I've repented enough. You get to remember your baptism. Already you've been cleansed. Jesus has already bathed you by his blood and his spirit. You belong here. There's a seat with your name on it at your father's table. So come and feast. And so as, as we think about that, and we think about, you know, tying all these things together. You know, at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you the question, you know, what do you want most for the next generation? And I think all of us would say, we want the next generation to know Jesus. And so the, one of the best ways we can help the next generation know Jesus is to help them find their seat at the Lord's table. And I don't just mean like, okay, get into the table and then it's done. I mean, in that, we're helping them know their need for Jesus. We're helping them know that Jesus meets their need by giving his life for them and giving, uh, uh, giving them the spirit and giving them the means of grace. And we're helping them learn how to be nourished in their faith. That, that is what will sustain them when they go out in, into the world and leave our church one day, whether that's for work or college or, or whatever else. And often then, the way we get to do that is by making sure they have a seat at the table in our own lives, that we are present with them. And, and this is something that I, I want to uh, make very clear. Our church, I think, is doing extremely faithful and by the Lord's blessing, fruitful work in that. We have uh, 10 people who volunteer as youth leaders, um, I basically need to rent one van just to get the, all, all the youth leaders on the youth retreat. Um, that's awesome. Uh, like, I, I mean, when we went to the, the Presbyterian youth retreat last year, not only did we have the most students there, uh, but we had the most leaders there. And I don't say that like, because the numbers matter. I'm saying that to just give you the sense of scale of the work God has entrusted to us and the scale of the faithfulness of adults in our church who are caring for the next generation. Like, that's a, that's a gift and a blessing. And, and by this similar token, we have over 50 and going on 60 people who serve in our children's ministry. That's awesome. Like that, that, I mean, we need more volunteers because we have more kids, but like that's a lot of people. You know, at that point when you, you run the numbers, that's a huge proportion of our church who's actively participating in the discipleship of the next generation. And one of the best ways, though, you might be thinking, oh man, like I did not just cite that so that if you're not one of those people to make you feel bad. Um, because like 
I don't have any more room for youth leaders right now. And that, praise God, the needs are met. But all of us, all of us can participate in this work by knowing the young people in our church and by cultivating conversations between the generations. Those of us who are older, by any degree, we need them as much as they need us. The generations in Christ keep one another grounded in him and don't let any one generation take center stage and say, everyone needs to be like our generation in order for the church to work. No, no, no. We all need to be like Jesus and we help each other as his body in that work. And so again, one of the ways to do that is to make sure the next generation has a seat and has a voice at our tables. And that's where these questions come into play that I have for you in the bulletin. These questions are designed to help us have conversations, not just amongst ourselves, parents and adults and grandparents, but with young people. And I don't just mean our, our students or our teens. They, they can kind of pick which set of questions they want. They can answer either one. Um, but I mean as young down to our elementary kids. Um, if your kid can talk, try asking the question and see what they say. And so for, for adults in the room, how can you become more childlike in your relationship with Jesus? And how can growing in this way help you disciple the next generation? Our presence emotionally and, and, and our humility or pride, those things have an extreme effect on those around us, especially those who are younger than us. And so are we modeling for them help, our sense of helplessness and dependence upon Jesus? Do they see in us those who know we need Jesus and who want, our, who want them to experience the same thing? Or do they experience in us people who think we have it all together and if they would just be more like us, the world would be a better place. We have to think about that. And we have to ask them, you know, how would they answer that question on our behalf? But then kids, um, whether you are in kindergarten, um, although uh, you might be in a class right now, but even if you're in here, uh, all the way up through high school and even college, I want to ask you directly because this passage speaks directly to you. Jesus speaks not just about kids. He speaks to kids just like you in this passage. And so this question is for you if you are a, a child, a teenager in this room right now. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Because our prayer for you is that you would hear his voice. Again, he spoke to children younger than all of you. The kids that were, that were uh, you know, infants um, in this passage, they're, they're out there in a room. Um, you know, and Jesus is speaking to them as well. But if he spoke to them and they were that little, you can better believe that he's speaking to you. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to know that he loves you. Do you believe that? And then secondly, this question is really important, and I'm excited to ask you this question, and I hope you'll get a chance to answer it later on today or this week. But how can we, your church family children, help you in your relationship with Jesus? How can we help you grow to know Jesus? That's a question that you're allowed to answer. We want to hear from you. This is not just your parents' church. This is your church. You're part of it. And you belong here, which means if there are, there are ideas you have about how we can encourage you, how we can know you, how we can pray you, we want to hear from you. And adults, we need to make sure our ears are open and that our schedules are open and that there, our tables are open so that we can listen to our, our children and better come alongside them and not be afraid of their questions, but, but let them um, you know, come, come into light because that is often where some of the best discipleship will happen, when we are listening to one another and so let's this Lord's Day Sabbath, let's spend time having these discussions together. You can do it at home with your family. You can invite another family and friends over. Small groups, you know, maybe if, if the children don't usually participate in your discussion for like five minutes, you can bring them in and just ask these questions. And, and if there are ways that we as, as the church uh, staff and the session can help you, like if, if a kid has an idea and you're like, that's actually a really good idea, like we should consider that, like email me or call me, like let's, let's talk about it. These questions aren't hypothetical, they're real. 
We want to take seriously the fact that Jesus calls children to himself, and he calls all of us to receive him like a child with helplessness and dependence, because he alone can save us, and he indeed has. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks uh, that you are so good, uh, that, Lord, you have sent your Son um, to to draw near to us, to to touch us by his grace and his mercy, and to bring us to life, to call us out of darkness, to call us out of sin, to call us out of the shadow of death, and, Lord, to give us newness of life. Lord, we thank you that as many people as are in this room, there are that many stories of you doing doing that and being at work. And so, Lord, we, we pray and ask that you would help us to grow in our assurance of your love for us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the sacraments to train us to receive and rest upon you like a child, to receive you in our helplessness, knowing that we don't have to prove ourselves. Lord, I pray that if there are ways where where any of us are are feeling the burden of, of that, of feeling like we don't measure up, Lord, set us free by your grace and your gospel. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, Lord, would you do that, that we might rest in your love. And Lord, we thank you that we are dependent upon you like children, depend upon their parents for the next meal. Lord, we depend upon you every day to sustain us by your grace. And you give us the table that we get to come there and and see and taste that for real. Lord, help us to, to have eyes to see all the ways you are at work in our lives, sustaining us, sustaining the next generation. Lord, may our church be a church that doesn't just talk about ministering to the next generation, but that listens to them. And, and helps them feel welcomed and recognizes that they belong to you just as much as we do. And this is their church as much as it is, as it is ours. Lord, I thank you for all of the children and the students in our church. I thank you for the ways that you are helping many of them start to use their gifts for your glory and for the good of one another. Lord, keep doing it. And hold them fast. Hold us fast. Lord, there's a lot in the world that can frighten us for the moment right now. There's a lot in the world that can frighten us when we think about Uh, the generations to come and the world that they will live in. But Lord, this is your world no matter what. And so may we be sustained and shaped by your sacraments more than anything else so that we would all be a people, Lord, confident that you are our Father and we are your redeemed and beloved children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.